This week on WealthTrack, influential economist David Rosenberg warns life is going to change permanently after COVID-19. To me, that's the primary risk here, is that as the economy opens up, demand doesn't follow suit. Companies don't have the margins. They have to lay off workers, and we get a second-round impact that way that makes it a very frustrating recovery, or maybe just an L-shaped recovery, which is, which is no recovery at all. He'll explain why nothing is normal this week on Consuelo Mac Wealth Track. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Funding provided by Morgan Le Fay Dreams Foundation, Clearbridge Investments, a Leg Mason company, Miller Value Funds, Royce and Associates, Matthews Asia, First Eagle Investment Management, Strategus Asset Management, and Eaton Vance. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. This week's guest, influential economist David Rosenberg, is known for his tell-it-like-it-is commentary, independence of thought, and frequently contrarian take on the economy and markets. He will not disappoint in this interview. His headline sentiment is, nothing is normal. Got that right. As I talk to you from home, you are probably listening from the place you have been sheltering in place for months. Tragically, someone you know might be one of the 100,000-plus victims of COVID-19 or one of the more than 40 million Americans who have filed for unemployment, or an owner or employee of the approximately 30 million small businesses damaged by the economic shutdown. We have all been stunned by the record-breaking macro events, GDP growth falling off a cliff, unimaginably massive monetary and fiscal stimulus, and the breathtaking stock market performance the shortest bear market ever, followed by the best 50-day post-bear market rally in the S&P 500 63-year history. If nothing is normal, what will our new normal look like? Dave Rosenberg is president, chief economist, and strategist at his independent economic consulting firm, Rosenberg Research and Associates, which he launched early this year. His stated priority is providing investors with analysis and insights to help them make well-informed investment decisions. For the last decade, Rosenberg was chief economist and strategist at Canadian asset management firm Gluskin Chef. Before that, he was chief North American economist at Bank America Merrill Lynch and was consistently ranked an all-star analyst by institutional investors. His daily Breakfast with Dave newsletter is considered a must-read by retail and institutional investors alike. I began the interview by asking Rosenberg to describe how abnormal conditions were becoming even before the pandemic. It's a a great question because uh, a lot of people out there are yearning for everything to return back to the pre-pandemic normal. And my typical response is, be careful what you wish for. Uh, Because we knew already before the pandemic uh, that the economy was cooling off. Uh, First quarter GDP, just as an example, contracted at a 5% annual rate. And productivity was down 0.9%. So we already had an economy uh, that was cooling down. Productivity was in a recession. Capital spending had been in a recession. Commercial construction had been in a recession. And for most of last year, uh, we were in a recession. 
in corporate profits. Uh, what kept the glue together, of course, was the fact that the consumer kept chugging along. Um, but the the pre-pandemic norm uh, was actually quite abnormal. And in fact, we have to just look at everything in the context of the entire cycle. Uh, I mean, here we had the weakest economic growth cycle of all time, barely more than 2% at an annual rate in terms of real GDP. And of course, we had a uh, phenomenal stock market um, that was built on a lot of financial engineering in the sense that it was the biggest debt for equity swap of all time. Uh, instead of the debt being issued to finance capital expenditure for productivity purposes, it went to buy back stock. Um, so that's the real world that we had. Dave, what about the fact that the president points to, of course, is that the unemployment rate was at an all-time low. How do you explain you know, that? Isn't that hmm. worth a lot? It was at a 50-year low. Uh, that much is true. And uh, we got as low as 3.5%. But take right. a look at the quality of the jobs that were created. Uh, most of the jobs that were created this cycle uh, you know, uh, was not in physics or in engineering or in the sciences. Uh, it was in entertainment, it was in leisure, it was in hotels, Healthcare. it was in theme parks. What did we just find, find out? We found out that the non-essential part of the economy had to shut down. But who knew until we shut it down that the non-essential part of the US economy was 80% of GDP. I, I call right. it the, the non-essential economy. These are low-skilled, uh, low-educated, low-value-added sectors of the economy. Uh, and those were the sectors that drove job growth, uh, that drove that unemployment rate down. And that's why everybody was always wondering, how is it that we're not getting any wage growth in the economy with the unemployment rate going down so much? Well, because the jobs were being created in low-wage sectors of the economy. That's why right. we never got a normal income thrust from this tightening labor market over the past 10 years. So this is a characteristic of the service economy, right? Well, there's different services. Uh, the cloud is a service. There's technology services, right. there's internet services. But I'm just saying that um, uh, a large driver, when you're taking a look at the sectors of the economy that generated the greatest job creation and answer the question, how do we get down to these low levels of unemployment? And, and there's a lot of people that work uh, in those sectors of the economy, very labor intensive. And that's the part that got hurt the most. Um, so that's what I thought was unusual. Shutting down the economy meant shutting down 80% of the economy, which is what we deemed to be non-essential. That was a real that was a real eye opener for me. Right. And why has productivity been so low? Because there was no capital deepening this cycle. Not only was it the weakest cycle ever for GDP growth, but it was the weakest cycle by far for capital expenditure. And that was what was really frustrating for me as somebody who focuses on the fundamentals, somebody who would rather have had a productivity-led cycle like we've had in the past. So what happened this cycle, when I said that the bull market, the real bull market was actually in financial engineering, you know, when I went mm -hmm. to economic school, you learned that companies issue debt. They issue debt to do what? You issue debt to spend in the economy to generate some future rate of return on capital invested. That didn't happen this cycle. It went into share buybacks. That's why the stock market ended up trading like a commodity because the share count went down to a 20-year low. And that was the story for the stock market. That's why we had this big divide. And by the way, we continue to have a big divide between Main Street and Wall Street. But the answer to the question is this. There is no future productivity growth if you don't engage in capital spending. And what happened this time is that the spending was really, uh, was really geared towards share buybacks. 
Uh, and so, okay. yeah, so that's really the big story behind the story is the fundamental lack of productivity growth this cycle, and it's going to be continuing for the next couple of years as well. There's going to be very little in the way of productivity growth. So let's talk about the pandemic hit. And as you just mentioned, if, if 80% of GDP is these, you know, the non-essential workers, they have gotten completely screwed you know, with, with this economic shutdown. Uh, but it's also been followed you know, by the fastest and largest stimulus program in U.S. history, uh, both on a fiscal basis and also on a monetary basis. Why don't you think it's going to be enough? Well, because people spend their organic wages and salary that they get from work uh, differently than what they spend from a government uh, handout. Uh, completely different um, savings rate and multiplier impact. Uh, you know, what do what do people spend their government handouts on? Uh, mostly on food and on rent. pharmaceuticals, rent, utilities, okay. the necessities. So this isn't right. uh, this isn't fun money. Okay, to go out and uh, you're not going to go buy a car or a house or or go fly anywhere and go on a vacation or go to Disney based on a stimulus check from the government. That's really to help you uh, get through uh, this very painful period. That's not going to be a big driver for the economy. So long as these people are unemployed, uh, they're going to be very uncertain about their future. And that means that they're also going to be saving a very big chunk of the stimulus checks. It's not all going to be going into into spending. So I think that's one of the problems when people talk about stimulus. This is not FDR stimulus of the 1930s. The New Deal was a funky deal, but uh, it, it, it paid people to go to work. You know, we built the Golden Gate Bridge, the Triborough Bridge, the Lincoln Tunnel, extended Route 66, the the Hoover Dam. Um, you know, we're paying people right now not to work. And that has a different multiplier impact, a very smaller one on the economy. So when we talk about the big stimulus, it's not really stimulus at all. Uh, these are basically, you know, these are uh, government checks to help people, you know, stay intact. That's slightly different than right. talking about stimulus. How much of the damage that's been done by this pandemic and the shutdown uh, do you think is going to be permanent? And how much of it do you think is going to be transitory until the economy starts to reopen? Well, it um, it's all going to come down to one thing and one thing only, which is the vaccine. Right. And uh, what's the timing? What's the effectiveness? Uh, how broadly will it be distributed? Uh, that's going to be extremely important. Um, so if you were to tell me that uh, we're going to get a, a vaccine, it's going to be credible, it's going to be effective, it's going to be broadly distributed by the end of the year, uh, we're going to have a huge recovery. And it'll be likely sustainable. Demand is going to hinge on confidence. This time around, the confidence is not about you know restoring the integrity of the banking system. Uh, it's about a vaccine. And that creates the confidence for people to start engaging with each other again and uh, eliminating the social distancing. The social distancing itself is very anti-growth, uh, even as we still so social distance. So that's the distance. magic pill. It's a ma it is, <laughs> there it, is a magic it, it's pill. A, it's a game changer. It's a game changer. Right. If you don't get a vaccine, uh, and look at the stock market right now is placing a very heavy bet that we're going to get a vaccine this year. Yes. Uh, but if we don't get a vaccine, uh, we're going to get rolling waves of this virus. It's going to yeah, you know, and I don't think the economy is going to lock down again. That's not what I'm saying. I think we just we had that shot. We're not locking down the economy again. But 
Remember what I said before is that the economy was already cooling off on its own accord because people were turning cautious as they figured out what was going on here even before the lockdown. So uh, without a vaccine, demand is going to be constrained and whatever recovery we get, and we will get a recovery, but it's going to be painfully slow uh, unless we get some sort of very effective treatment that deals with the uh, horrible symptoms of uh, the coronavirus. Uh, vaccine is a game changer, but and that's really what the big unknown is right now. Uh, the, the stock market right now is really it's, it's a hope-based rally and also fueled by the Fed stimulus. If the, everything kind of hinges on the vaccine, I mean, how much time you know does the economy have, uh, for instance, not to have again more permanent damage done to it? So let's say you sound very skeptical that we're going to get a vaccine, an effective vaccine. Uh, by the end of this year, but let's say we got it in the first half of next year. Uh, I mean, again, what are the economic repercussions? The confidence and the demand aren't going to return sufficiently uh, to allow businesses, many businesses, to stay open. Um, You're taking a look, for example, at the restaurant industry. The restaurant industry, uh, you know, you you have razor-thin margins. Uh, You know, you you spend 30% on food 30 percent on labor 30 percent on rent you have 10 percent margins restaurants cannot operate at 50 or even 75 percent capacity right the key is going to be how do we absorb all the excess capacity and with a very sluggish recovery it's going to cause deflationary pressure and and more insolvencies and to me that's the probably the bigger risk for next year even if you you put off a vaccine say to the second half of 2021 uh, a lot of businesses uh, are are going to go under in that in that uh, in that scenario, or we'll just have to continue to rely on the government to uh, to prime the fiscal pump uh, and um, and and more easing out of the Fed. I think that they'll help cushion the blow. But to me, that's the primary risk here: is that as the economy opens up, demand doesn't follow suit. Companies don't have the margins; they have to lay off workers. And we get a second round impact that way that makes it a very frustrating recovery or maybe just an L-shaped recovery, which is which is no recovery at all. But if, if nothing is normal, uh, you know, what is the new normal going to be like? So there's no real template for this. I think that there's a few things that we did learn. Uh, we learned that, for example, uh, households were not prepared for this. I was actually stunned to find out uh, that over 50% of American households did not have enough cash on hand to even withstand three months of a lockdown. That's And here you told me before that we had a 3.5% unemployment rate, apparently the best labor market of all time. And we went into this with over half not prepared for a rainy day. And it was not just a rainy day, it was a, it was a storm. And so I think people's attitudes towards savings, towards their family budget, uh, towards their balance sheets uh, are going to go through a profound change. So we're going to be into a new and higher, permanently higher range on the personal savings rate. And so for an economy uh, whose uh, share of consumers is 70% and we're into a new regime where the savings rate is going to be in a higher range than it was before, I'm not saying we're staying at 33%. (laughs) That's not going to happen, but we're in a new and higher range, which is not the end of the world. But remember, GDP is about spending. 70% of it's the consumer, so I think the operative word is going to be frugality. That is not good for economic growth, let's face it. Well, how did this happen? That um, we had a health crisis, 
morph into an economic crisis. And of course, you would expect if you're going to shut down the non-essential economy, okay, we're going to have a deep recession. Health crisis morphs into an economic crisis. How did that morph into a financial crisis? How did this turn into a financial crisis that was 10 times worse than 08, 09 when Lehman went bust? How is that possible? Did anybody at the time that even the WHO finally woke up and said, oh, yes, you know what, this is a pandemic after all? Was anybody at that point saying, oh, yeah, you know what, the Fed is going to have to come in and buy high-yield ETFs? The Fed has, in this process, probed the outer limits of monetary policy by multiples. The Fed's balance sheet has expanded by $3 trillion just in the past couple of months. Mm -hmm. The the balance sheet now is over $7 trillion. The Fed did more in, in three months than it did in seven years from 2008 all the way to 2014. The Fed did more in three months. Who was talking about that? Uh, how How is that possible? How did the markets freeze up, not just the stock market, but the credit markets? It's because we had such a massively over-leveraged corporate sector balance sheet. And I'm pretty sure I was talking about this uh, the last time we got together. That yes, we went in, Yeah, mm-hmm. so we went into this with massively over-leveraged corporate balance sheets. Of course, now the bad actors are getting bailed out again uh, for the greater good, so they say. Right, the um, high-yield issuers, but, right. But yeah, but that's something that we have to contemplate as well, that not only is the household sector going to be treating its balance sheet with far greater care in the future, uh, but so is the corporate sector. And so you're going to be seeing fewer buybacks. You're going to be seeing more cash in the balance sheet. Because uh, it wasn't just the household sector that didn't save for the rainy day. It was also the corporate sector. So... Um, so I think that there's going to be a lot of very profound changes taking place uh, over the course of the next several years. And, and the theme is going to be one of frugality. That This shock is uh, going to have long-lasting effects uh, because people will realize now that, uh, you know, these pandemics can affect us. We came pretty close with SARS uh, back in 2003. Well, it doesn't really mm-hmm. seem that long ago, 17 years ago. We should have been much more prepared for this. But the lesson here is that and, of course, Bill Gates was all over this, and there were some others, too, uh, that there are probably going to be future pandemics. And, uh, you know, how right. uh, you know how we live in terms of um, even, uh, you know, cleanliness and washing our hands and social distancing and protocols. Uh, so, you know, vaccine or no vaccine, uh, this is probably not the last pandemic we're going to see. We have to prepare for the next one. So that's so, going to be you know, a, lot, like a lot of shifts nine, in attitudes. Right. So, you know, just, just like after 9-11, uh, you know, certainly there were warnings about terrorist attacks before 9-11. But once they happened, you're right, there were profound changes that we saw in the airline industry and surveillance and a number of things. So we're probably we're going to see the same thing now. You're right. Post-pandemic. But, you know, you mentioned the corporate sector. You mentioned the household sector. Let's talk about the government sector. I mean, by some estimates, if uh, if all of the you know, legislation, the stimulus, fiscal stimulus is passed uh, and, you know, looking at what state and local spending is going to be as well. I mean, you know, we could be seeing the share of GDP by the government, uh, you know, around 50 percent in some scenarios. And uh, it's it wasn't even that high during World War Two. So what does that do to the economy when you've got such in a you know, a largely 
privately, you know, private enterprise driven economy, suddenly the government has like, you know, a share of half. What does that do to the economy? Higher government deficits, higher government involvement in the economy comes down to what I talked about before. That's going to be a result of this, a structural shift. As weak as productivity has been in the past 10 years, it's going to remain extremely weak. Uh, so that's the first point uh, that I would make. Then we have to discuss who's going to pay for all this fiscal largesse. Who's going to pay for right. it? Um, and so some future taxpayer, like, you know, I'm sure at some point we'll talk about the politics in the November election. Uh, there's some non-trivial chance that the Democrats end up sweeping, uh, you know, uh, and believe me, the Democrats are not the stock market's friend. That much is for sure. Um, mm-hmm. But the but the Democrats will, maybe not immediately, but they will be raising corporate taxes. They will be raising capital gains taxes. They'll be raising top marginal tax rates. Either way, at some point, someone has to pay for all this. It could be a combination that it all just lands on the Fed's balance sheet and we monetize the debt, uh, which would be inflationary, of course. Um, right. Or a combination of raising taxes, which is, you know, what's really incredible is when you go back to the 1930s, uh, despite the incredible cost of the Depression and the added cost of the New Deal, uh, FDR never ran a deficit over 7.5% of GDP. Did you know that? That was the highest deficit. I did not in the know that. Dep- yeah, and we're going to clear 20% this year. Uh, the, 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 the debt ratio... Uh, never got above 30%. It's going to be well over 100% this year. And actually, by 1938, the U.S. government was back in the, a balanced budget because, uh, you know, back in those days, in the 1930s, uh, taxes was not a dirty five-letter word. Uh, but right. things things are going to be changing. So that's something else we have to consider is that, yes, it's nice to talk about, as you said before, well, the stimulus, the stimulus. But the reality is that the government does not create income. The government borrows money, uh, the government redistributes income, but it's the private sector that creates the income, not the government. And so at some point, someone's going to have to pay for all this. It's some future taxpayer, and it could just be a couple of years away, but I've got to tell you, it's not going to be the little guy or the little gal. It's not going to be Main Street. Uh, it's going to be uh, Wall Street that ends up paying for this. Uh, and I think we're going to find, yeah. you know, Occupy Wall Street, remember that, it's going to be Occupy Wall Street in the future on steroids. You've just identified another profound shift. I mean, we've had you know decades of a more pro-capital, uh, you know, bent to investments, to taxation, to government. So, and I, and I know you told me um, over the phone earlier that you think that we're we're shifting to more of a pro-labor. It's it's not going to be as friendly to capital as it has been. So, and for an invest, you know, for investors, they need to know that, right? Well, look, uh, uh, I believe in Bob Farrell's rule number one, which is uh, about and Bob main... Farrell, who was a you know famous t- uh, technical analyst at Merrill Lynch. He's a legend the, on Wall Street. The, the, What's the his de- rule number one? The rule number one <laughs> is that everything ultimately reverts to the mean. Of course, levels don't revert to the mean, but ratios do. And when you're taking a look at what economists call the Gini coefficient, which is uh, you know the income disparities or wealth disparities, they've gone to levels that would have made Marie Antoinette blush. Uh, unprecedented. Uh, and that's why, you know, we're seeing these riots and these demonstrations. Uh, and of course, it's not just about uh, the uh, brutal murder. Uh, uh, it was basically, you know, a, uh, a touching point, uh, a raw nerve uh, that really comes down right. to this wide divide between Wall Street and Main Street. Uh, so there, I, I would tell you right now, and look, I'm, I'm a capitalist, uh, but, you know, capitalism and democracy 
are always dancing uh, on a pin, and it's a very tenuous relationship, uh, but they both need each other. Uh, and so uh, we just stretch things too far. You could argue that it got exacerbated during the Reagan supply side era, but then it got reinforced even by Democrat presidents ever since. But the disparities, I would say, uh, are going to become the number one. The number one economic issue heading into the election is going to be on income inequality. Uh, so long as, well, we'll see what happens with the pandemic. But to me, that'll be uh, a very important issue and one that I think is going to resonate this time around much more than it has in the past. So, Dave, at the end of every wealth truck, we always ask our guests for one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio. So given the scenario that you've described really is that nothing is normal, what would your one investment recommendation be? My number one recommendation, and I'd say right now my highest conviction call would be on gold uh, or even gold mining stocks uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, and one of them is because I think we're going to go into a future of stagflation, weak growth and higher inflation down the road, and there is no more better tangible asset that you want to own as a hedge against that world than bullion. All right, Dave Rosenberg, we're going to leave it there for, uh, for this week's program, and we're going to have you back on again next week to discuss uh, what this means for the markets and for investors. So thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is a summer reading suggestion that I have gotten a jump start on during the lockdown. It will take you out of our era into a much more tumultuous and destructive one, yet filled with inspiration. It is read Churchill, Walking with Destiny by Andrew Roberts. It is the latest biography and an excellent one-volume treatment of the entire life of Great Britain's amazing prime minister. We know him for standing up to Hitler alone after the rest of Europe had surrendered, but his long life is filled with adventure, daring do, courage, serious setbacks, and recoveries. He is one of my heroes, and walking with destiny only enhances my admiration for him. Next week, in part two of our interview with Dave Rosenberg, we'll explore investing what he calls the homebody economy. I can't wait for that one. In the meantime, keep connecting with us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thank you for joining us. Have a relaxing weekend and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.